Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today, on the centenary of the passage of the Censorship of Films Act in Ireland, we are joined by the last man to hold the title of film censor and the first to hold that of the film classifier, John Kelleher. John is and has been one of Ireland's preeminent film and TV producers for many years. After studying law in UCD and doing a master's in drama in the US, John returned to work as a producer, a director, and ultimately as controller of programs at RTE. Subsequently, he would serve as editor of the Sunday Tribune and set up his own production company, Fastnet Films. In 2003, after public consultation, John was appointed as the nation's film censor. Since its establishment soon after the birth of the state, this office held and exercised the power to cut, ban, and otherwise censor films in the Republic if they were found to be contrary to public morality or otherwise deprave or corrupt. Usually, this constituted anything contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Though it had liberalized somewhat in the years preceding his tenure, John's monumental efforts brought about the modernization of the office for the 21st century. Changing the office, in his words, from, quote, guard dog to guide dog, IFCO was renamed from the Irish Film Censor's Office to the Irish Film Classification Office. In effect, banning films was out of the question. IFCO went from deciding what content was morally pure for the population to watch and censoring accordingly, to simply assigning age classifications to movies, allowing citizens to exercise their own discretion as to what content was fit for their personal consumption. Today, John is as active as ever in the film and TV industries. Recent productions of his company, John Kelleher Media, include The Guarantee, Mammal, The Sparrow, and he is currently working on a new film with Charlie Bird, Ransom 79. We discuss that film in today's episode. We talk about the history of IFCO, some of the more absurd examples of historical censorship, his own experience growing up in Ireland under that censorship, and about his own time at the helm of IFCO his reforms during that time, his career in production, and John shares parting words with the generation of Irish that have never known film censorship. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsors, EY, for their continued support. John, thank you very much for coming on to Bramcast. You're more than welcome. The last censor. (laughs) Tell me, what was the role of the film censor? In my day or earlier? Both. Earlier, it was because it changed. It changed quite a lot. Earlier, it was to stop things. Like it was, we used to say, when I was there, we used to say that we changed it from from being guard dog to guide dog. Because in the initial stages, from the time it was first set up, 1923, Censorship of Films Act, effectively it was to stop stuff coming in that would be seen to contaminate the the youth of uh, of Ireland or indeed the adults because it was censorship for everybody it wasn't just for children or young people it was for everybody that changed I'm glad to say uh, changed considerably to what it is now today so IFCO the Irish Film Classification Office as it's called not censorship office is uh, it's really a place where consumer advice is given to especially to parents on behalf of their 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 kids so that so that a parent knows that such and such a film uh, or dvd video is is uh, age related suitable for a particular age group and it was one of the first um pieces of legislation that was passed that established the censor's office what particularly you said um immoral things for example was it, um, you know, so soon after winning our independence, the influence of England they were trying to stop? Was it? What were... <laughs> well, it's a good question. But in fact, the, the first censor, who was quite a character, I think, James Montgomery, he said, it's not the Anglicization of Ireland that I'm concerned about. It's the Los Angelization. And that was the case. It was the influence of American movies. And of course, the things that they were really... Um, most concerned about. I mean, if you had to say it in one three-letter word, it would have been sex. That would be the the huge concern. 
Uh, second would be like religion and anything that in any way contravened conventional Catholic morality uh, was 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 definitely came under scrutiny. And see, nowadays, if you're talking about the censorship of sex, the, the, the phrase that most people know is NSFW, not suitable for work. Generally, that regards its pretty explicit nudity. Was that the sex that they were censoring back then or... No, no, they were they weren't even getting to the nudity bit. There's, there was there was absolutely uh, like one of the censors, uh, you know, kind of anything below the ankle that was visible, you know, was or below the the knee was was had to be cut, you know. Uh, he, there's another uh, phrase, well known phrase from one of the early censors, which was that the girl on the village green is showing far too much leg. Cut them off. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. I think he probably meant, you know, cut them off as in editing. Uh, but <laughs> that would be an example of how of what their concern was. I mean, some of the decisions were really pretty extraordinary by today's standards. What exa- What could you give us a few examples of that, those decisions? Well, thousands of films were cut, for example, and like they they would be by today's standards. You just wonder, like, well, what what was it in fact? Um, but like anything that remotely suggested um, premarital or extramarital sex was uh, just cut, just simply cut. Um, uh, anything that were, was contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church, so obviously abortion was a complete no-no. Uh, even pregnancy, you know, was something that they were like nervous about, and and and. Some of the cuts were quite extraordinary. I mean, really extraordinary because they disturbed and completely threw out of sync the context of the film. I mean, even in later years, even when I was a young person going to the cinema, uh, like, for example, there was a film, The Graduate, in, in, you know, which, was a, which got numerous Oscars, I think. And the, the, uh, in it, the character played by the actor Dustin Hoffman is... is Effectively seduced by the uh, an older woman played by Anne Bancroft, that was all cut from the Irish version of the film, so that the Irish audience did not know what was the core uh, theme, uh, subject matter of the, of the film. They would have thought that Mrs. Bancroft and um, Mrs. Uh, Robinson was the character's name, of course, you know, uh, and and. The Dustin Hoffman character called Benjamin were just friends. You know, they were just friends and neighbors, whereas in fact they were having a romantic sexual relationship. So, was there a list of these things that were considered depraved or corrupt? Or was it um, influenced by the government at the time? Or was it up to the censor themselves? It's interesting because it was it was enshrined in the legislation, you know, contrary to public morality, uh, obscene blasphemous. Those words were in the initial legislation. But there was one very clever piece of drafting. Like it really was a very, I'm not sure if it was done accidentally or if they had a view to the future. Probably not. But it was very, very clever because they used the phrase in the opinion of the censor. So so that phrase meant that in, in the opinion of James Montgomery, the first censor, who literally banned hundreds, if not thousands of films, if in his opinion something was obscene or contrary to public morality or blasphemous, then it was. And it went, it got cut or banned, actually. But that meant that down the years, over the period, over the hundred years since that first legislation was enacted, the person who had that role, who was the, the, the censor, their opinion counted. So what they saw as contrary to public morality or blasphemous or obscene was what mattered. And that meant that as, as society changed, as, the, uh, as our society became more liberal, I mean, it took some time, but, but uh, certainly not in the first 30, 40 years, nothing much changed. But in more recent years, in the last 30, three or four decades, as things have completely become more liberal, that allowed the person in the post to reflect that. And it's, there's no question about this, that, that, that the history of 
censorship, it reflects the social, political, cultural history of the state as it emerged. And do you think that it was the liberalization of Irish culture that brought the end of film censorship or the other way around? Or both? Oh, I think it was the it was the former. It was definitely you know the liberalisation that brought the end. Like the, there was always there were there was always a, 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 a significant body of opposition to censorship, uh, and eventually it kind of emerged more strongly. I mean, there were there were lonely voices initially, and then more um, stronger voices, uh, more voices. More, more, more lately, uh, but as society changed, it became obvious that certain things were 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 too restrictive, and and there was also, I think, a greater recognition that in a mature society such as we have, adults should be able to make up their their own mind. You may have to remember that the the, the until relatively recently, the censor was ma- was was actually making decisions for adults. So, you know, as I said, when I was, you know, growing up as a young adult, I was a young adult in the 70s, and 200 movies were banned in the 70s. We used to go to Belfast or London to see a dirty movie. So it, the censorship didn't work in the fact that you were still aware of the movies that were in circulation. You were still aware, presumably you were aware why they weren't available in Ireland, but it didn't stop you nor the public at large from trying to go see them. Well, it didn't stop it. I mean, it, it, practically speaking, it was a very expensive. You couldn't really go to London. I mean, I, I, I think I saw Last Tango in Paris, which was banned in Ireland. I think I saw that in London. But it was because I was in London working, you know, at the time. I mean, I wouldn't have gone to London actually to see it or even up on the train to Belfast. Although might have, you know, if it was a really good movie. But you, yes, you were aware of these films, of course, because people were reading magazines. And even though social media didn't exist in those days, there was still kind of plenty of word of mouth and programs and so forth, references. Do you think that the detriments of censorship exist in society, even if the society itself is in favour of that censorship? Oh, I think... I think that it, it, it's it, the censorship of films was was merely a manifestation of the way society viewed itself. I, you know, the Catholic Church was immensely powerful, and it dictated effectively. I mean, it was said that the Archbishop of Dublin actually had you know huge influence and and control over the censor censors of the time. In fact. Uh, there's there's a case it's on the record where um, the the censor of the time wrote in his book by order of his grace it's quite extraordinary to think about the implications of this by order of his grace the Archbishop of Dublin uh, no I think it was no manifestation no visual images will be shown of certain things sacraments for example like the Eucharistic Congress of 1932 which was a huge manifestation, you know, of like, I don't know, something like 70 cardinals came in to Ireland, even at that time. They weren't allowed to show in the cinemas, they weren't allowed to show benediction being um, portrayed. They weren't allowed to show the Pope blessing pilgrims in St. Peter's Square. And they weren't allowed, because that was regarded as detrimental to his authority. The, 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 the cinema was seen as a place of sin and filth. And, and, and therefore, it, it was inappropriate. Like, pilgrims going to Lourdes couldn't be shown. Wow. Yeah. So, they, sent, they were in favor of censoring sex, censoring any depiction of the sacraments. Was it just um, cuts in the movie they made? Or had the censor other powers beyond just um, certain scenes? Could they change the name? Yeah, they could. But they could, but well, the most most important power that they had was to ban. So that could be meant that the whole movie was banned, and many, many were. I think eleven thousand movies uh, were were banned 
you know, over the course of, you know, like the vast majority of those obviously early on. And then lots and lots and lots more were cut. But yes, they, they some of the censors actually changed the titles of the of the movies. And there are some hilarious uh, uh, examples of, of, of that. Um, like they, they would take the word divorce. They wouldn't accept the word divorce. It couldn't be in the title, you know. So they would just change it to something entirely different, you know. Uh, I think there was one title, Henry Goes Haywire, which you know had no rec- no reference to the original you know title and misbehaving husbands. That was un- unacceptable because you know mis- husbands shouldn't misbehave. So the censor was actually deciding what the title of the film should be. It's crazy. Were there any movies that you personally like that were banned at the time? Uh, probably before my time, the, there were movies banned. In- interestingly, my favorite movie of all time is Casablanca. I just adore it. Maybe that and Godfather too. But I love Casablanca. And Casablanca was banned initially in 1943 because it was deemed to contravene Ireland's neutrality. This was during the war, during the Second World War, the emergency as we called it. And I think it was the Minister for Foreign Affairs who who had the power. And he in, indicated or dictated that it was possibly contravening our neutrality because it might be seen to be anti-German. And so it was banned. Immediately after the war, the distributor resubmitted it. And interestingly, it was passed, but it was passed with cuts. And the cuts were quite extraordinary because the cuts meant that the viewer, the audience, became unaware or were unaware that there was a romance between the Humphrey Bogart character, Rick, and the uh, Ingrid Bergman character uh, in Paris, which is crucial to the the movie. So the famous line, one of the most famous lines in all of cinema, we'll always have Paris, (laughs) doesn't mean anything to the Irish viewer. Um, and, and, And even more... Incredible was the fact that the Ingrid Bergman character believes she's married and her husband is a freedom fighter and he is, she believes him to have been killed by the Nazis. So she she's a single woman, if you like, but she's not because he's actually alive, as emerges later in the film. So the censor didn't care that, 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 that this woman who ostensibly is a single woman and has a romance with uh, a single man that wasn't uh, that wasn't okay you know because she was actually married even though she didn't think she was my god the, the, just the the breadth of um things that came under the hammer of censorship and incredible the war as well when was the inflection point between someone like james montgomery to start and yourself by far the most liberal person to hold the role was it a slow march towards progress or was there an event? It's a, good, it's a good, it's an interesting question. There wasn't an event and it probably was relatively slow. Um, some of the censors, uh, there was a man called Frank Hall who, who succeeded, a man called Dermot Breen. Dermot Breen, incidentally, was the first director. He started the Cork Film Festival and he was the director, the festival director of the Cork Film Festival. But Frank Hall, who I worked for when I first worked in RTE, he was my boss, and he was a satirist. Like he was a he was a famous national satirist. His program was called Hall's Pictorial Weekly, and every week it satirized politics and social affairs and so forth. But Frank, Frank was liberal in some ways, but he was deeply conservative. From and so was Dermot Breen from the point of view of. Catholicism and the church. So, like, they, Frank, I think it was Frank who cut. Now, this, if you think about it, a satirist cutting, he actually cut uh, Monty Python's um, The Life uh, of Brian. Life of Brian. And, like, <laughs> that, that's, that's almost surreal, you know, that, that, that a satirist would, would, would cut that movie, but, but he did. Then he was, Frank Hall was succeeded by uh, my predecessor, Seamus Smith, who was very liberalizing. I mean, Seamus Seamus believed 
that he, he and he actually said on the record, he said, I, I see it as the director's job to cut the film, you know, mm-hmm. not mine. So, so he, he, he never, he wouldn't cut a film. So was it around um, his tenure that the focus changed from censoring content that adults would consume versus um, um, categorizing what content children would consume? Yes. Yeah, there was a, there was a, in Britain, I think they did it sooner. There was a kind of an X certificate, you know, which meant adults only. Um, in Ireland, it was a, 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 it was a lot longer in, in, in coming. And there was the over 18, um, which meant that, that people who were over 18 being adults could, could go to it and, and children couldn't. Uh, and that was a, a sort of a sea change as well, but a recognition which became increasingly important that as you know, that adults should decide what they should see. And then and this and and the office of the, the censor managed to get the name changed to classification, which describes what it does now. The classification of films effectively as kind of consumer advice for the public and parents in particular. Could you elaborate on the significance of that name change and how um the the role of the office changed when the office changed from the censor's office to the classifier's office. Yes, I think I think I think it had already changed, and the change of name was really a reflection of that that change. It probably should have happened sooner, um, but it happened. And by taking the word censor, which means effectively stop out of the equation and put in classify, which means effectively rate, you know, put put something into a context. Uh, that that was a sea change. And I think it, it uh, I think the public accepted that as well. I mean, there still needed to be uh, the certificate, you know, that you saw on the on the screen at the beginning. But but uh, that was that was a that was a very big change, really. So with the role of the office changing, were, was the question of banning films gone by that stage? Effectively, yes, because you, you, if you banned a film, if a film was banned, it meant that adults couldn't see that film. You might, it might have been banned with a view to not letting children see it, but effectively you were saying nobody can see it. And th- that didn't matter in the early days of censorship there was, when there was wholesale banning. And like eleven thousand movies, you know, banned, but and probably fifty thousand cut. But the in later years, obviously, um, banning w- w- was unacceptable because you were depriving adults of that of that choice that they could make. And what's the distinction between um, banning, or what was the distinction between banning and refusing classification? There's not really uh, any any distinction. I mean, te- for a film to be seen, or DVD or video to be distributed, it has to have a certificate. It has to it has to be certified, if you like, by IFCO, and IFCO wouldn't refuse certification. Um, sometimes there would be a discussion uh, between, like, a distributor might ask for guidance. Uh, which was always informal. It wasn't a, there wasn't a formula way of doing this, but a, but a distributor might say, "Is this movie likely to get a fifteen, or might it get a twelve A?" Meaning that you know a younger audience could see it, but they wouldn't ask, "Will it be banned?" I asked that question because um, I was reading just in the course of prep um, that I think it's a testament to how far the office went when the original stakeholder was probably, you know, Bishop McQuail, um, where there was an instance where I think sexual assault was shown on a film and you consulted with psychotherapists from Dublin um, Rape Crisis Centre. Um, that was not a precedent. It wasn't no. a strong precedent to consult with stakeholders like that, was it? No, that was a slightly different thing because what, what happened there was it was a DVD, it was a video. Um, the, the, the film... I hadn't been submitted for cinemas, it, it, uh, but that particular film, which was directed by a, a, a well-known French director called Gaspar Noé, um, it it was deemed like it was clearly going to be uh, 
a difficult one, you know. So I, I felt, well, the, the subject matter, the, the, the reason, the nature, you know, why this film is sensitive, controversial, is, is something that I would like to get some specialist guidance on. And it, 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 it's a, it's a, it, it contains a very, very uh, brutal and specific rape sequence, which was highly controversial at the time, even even in France, you know, where it was made. I think the, the sequence lasts about 11 minutes in the film, and it's pretty, you know, tough going. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, who, 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 would be in a, who would be best to advise in relation to this? So I got two psychotherapists from the Rape Crisis Centre who came and watched the film with a, myself and a colleague of mine. And interestingly, their uh, view was there's nothing wrong with putting out that film. It doesn't glorify, it doesn't exalt uh, rape in any way. It doesn't promote it in any way, quite the contrary. And what I did was I got the uh, distributor to put the uh, Rape Crisis Centre and Women's Aid on the packaging of the, of the DVD, like just to make sure that they were there. So that was really a kind of, again, a kind of a consumer uh, issue rather than anything else. And it worked very well. And were there other examples during your tenure where um, you... Suicide, yes. There was a film relating to suicide where I wanted to get specialist advice and, and got, you know, psycho psychologists uh, and, and, and again, experts in, in that field. How did you come into the role of censor? Because I presume it's not one where you're a young fellow saying, I'd love to decide what people are watching in this country. <laughs> well, I think I, I think I, in my case, I, I applied for it. It was advertised. And I think I was actually the first person to be appointed following a, a public competition. So I applied. A number of other people applied to the advertisement was interviewed, et cetera, and so forth. And I got the position. Uh, and I was quite pleased with the fact that I was the first person to have done so on foot of a, a public competition. Um, so so that's, that's how I got the job. Uh, and you were involved in film and media before that. Did you... And since. <laughs> and since, I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but when moving in that, I think it's 2003 you started, was it? Yes. Did you miss, was it a career jump that you were excited for when you were in the career? Did you miss um, producing? I did, but I also got the chance to see a couple of thousand films over the next six years while I was in the post. And I loved film. I worshipped, adored film and still do. I mean, although some of the films are just dreadfully bad. But uh, just watching films every day, you know, it's not a bad job to have, you know. And I, I did, I didn't really miss production that that much. I found it a welcome production. Film production is not easy, and you know it's arduous. So raising, trying to raise the money to make films, you know, as any producer will tell you, is is really difficult. So I didn't have that at all. I was paid a salary. I was. I went into the office. I watched films. And what's wrong with that? You know, it's really <laughs> to be welcomed. And I only did it for six, seven years and then returned, you know, to, to uh, probably refreshed. And I guess a two-pronged question. What proportion of your time was required to spend films? And had you a choice in the matter that you, um, what films you watched? And if there was one that you thought would be particularly bad, you might have delegated that responsibility? I, I, I think I'm going to have to dodge that question. But yeah, the, I didn't. I, I did have a team of people who were very good and very experienced, good judgment. And if there was a film that I knew, like there are certain kinds of films which I can't stand, you know, um, I won't, I won't, for fear of offending anybody, I won't kind of say what they are. But, but, but I, um, there would be films that I, I, and I don't think they're controversial films. It's just that the genre of the film is such that that I wouldn't be that. I could delegate. I could ask a long-suffering colleague to sit through that four-hour um, unfunny comedy. And did you did you ever grow tired of watching that many films? 
No, I don't think I ever did, actually. No, no, no. Because the, the, the point about it is, if you're, if you're in the business, if you're a producer and you're in you know, that world, you can, get, you can look at a film in two ways. Everybody can, actually. But, I mean, you specifically can look at it in two ways. You can look at it as a punter, as a, you know, uh, and obviously you're looking at it as a classifier. That, that goes without saying. But you can also look at it from a professional point of view. Why did they make that decision? Why did the writer put that scene in? Why didn't the director take that scene out? It doesn't work, you know. So even a bad film, you know, you can look at and say, oh, they, I can see where they went wrong on that, or this film. And I mean, you could almost say, I would almost have been able to say this about almost every film we've ever watched. It's too long. You know, this film could be five minutes shorter. Or this film could be an hour shorter, mm -hmm. you know. So, so that's, you're, you're operating, you're looking at it in a number of different ways simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So you don't grow tired of that. Wow. And I'd like to talk more about the producing to you, but before we move on to that, maybe just another couple of questions about um, when you were first censor and then classifier. I believe, um, say, adult films existed in a bit of a grey area in Irish society because presumably way back in the day, if you couldn't show somebody kissing in a film, adult films certainly wasn't. But they existed in kind of an area where they weren't illegal, but they weren't classified. classified. Is that a fair assessment of it? Uh, yes, I suppose there were, I mean, eventually you, you had like adult shops, you know, you had kind of shop, sex shops that specialized in, in, among other things, that specialized in, in videos that were um, not, not films in, in uh, a screening sense, in a theatrical sense, in a cinema sense, just DVDs or videos. Um, and they would be um, they would not have been classified. So it would have been illegal, effectively. And occasionally they were raided, guards were raided, and, and there was a market for them, you know, an illicit market, you know, various places around the country. Um, that Those didn't come under the, the remit of the, of the film censor. And things nowadays, as streaming films, they don't come under the remit of the film censor no. either, right? No. So what is, is it fair to say that the remit has um, shrank in the past few years? I think it would be fair to say that, yes, because there are a huge, there's a huge volume of content, whether it's uh, that's streamed, you know, whether it's uh, feature films or drama, TV, you know, the equivalent of what become box sets, um, that, that, that just is there and it doesn't get certified. Sorry, box sets would because they're if they're if they're sold in you know in in the marketplace they have to be uh, they have to carry a certificate. But anything that's that's obtained online or streamed, no, it doesn't. So you, having applied for the role of censor, you went into it with great industrial knowledge. How did you get into the film industry day one? I, I was in it for probably 30 years or more before I got the post as, as what was then called film censor. Uh, I, I, I'd always wanted to work in the audiovisual world. I'd always wanted to, I suppose I'd always wanted to be a producer. I started out and I was extremely lucky as a young producer director in RTE, which then uh, was the only game in town. There was no other place to be in this country. If you wanted to work in television, it was the only station. And I had been at college. I had studied law. I had um, I luckily got a scholarship to go to do postgraduate in America. And even more luckily, because I did not want to do a postgrad in law, um, I, I had the chance to go through a program which was just being established in that university, which was in Kentucky, the University of Louisville, uh, in drama. And uh, that, they were, apart from being very enjoyable and rewarding experience, getting the masters in drama was a, a kind of a calling card when I was then applying to get a job in RTE, which was very competitive because they were they would only take on you know eight or nine people every couple of years and hundreds of people would apply 
but that that masters in drama I know was very helpful from my point of view. So I became involved in RTE as I got in training, very good training course, lasted nine months, which is a long full time training for nine months. And it was it was equally competitive. There were nine people, I think, on the course, so we were told we weren't in competition with each other. They didn't take four at the end of the nine months. So it was tough going. And then I was working in RT as a producer director. I worked in current affairs. I worked in features, made documentaries, did did drama, and 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 then gradually became a kind of executive and a controller of programs. So I had that background. But it was a background in an area that I always wanted to be in. And to do a postgrad in film wouldn't have been an option in Ireland, would it? No, no, it didn't exist. There was no, not in any of the college. IADT didn't exist. Trinity, and which has a good film, um, you know, kind of department. That that wasn't the case then. You couldn't like if you wanted to do it. You had to do it in your own time. I mean, I I I was director of Dramsock in UCD, which was the Dramatic Society Players, if you like, in in Trinity, and you know, you you that was that was that helped me to uh, get into the the drama program in in America, but it was purely um, vocational, if you like, not uh, academic an academic curriculum program. And which did you prefer, um, the, the the film in a, in a, and fictional work or current affairs? I mean, you had Eat the Peach and uh, and you had Today Tonight. Fairly different um, genres. It, it's a very good question. I, I mean, both. is It's a simple answer, the one word answer. But I, I, I hugely enjoyed and I'm always interested in current affairs and politics. And, and it was great working in, in, in current affairs. I worked on a, on what was the predecessor to Today Tonight, really, called Seven Days, which was a very prestigious current affairs program on RTE. Um, and then I got the chance to establish Today Tonight when I became controller of programs. Uh, so I, I always had this yen, this this liking for, for, for current affairs. It was exciting, it was immediate, it was live, it was of of the day. Uh, and of course it still is. Uh, but but I always also always liked uh, the fiction side of things, so the creation of of drama, uh, or or movies or whatever. And so the first thing I did when I left RTE, well, actually initially I became, which was a, probably a, not the right thing for me. I became managing director of a newspaper briefly, but but I got back into being a producer as an independent producer. I uh, the first thing I did was a feature film called the one you mentioned, Eat the Peach. Uh, and that was really enjoyable because I co-wrote it and I, I produced it um, at a time when it wasn't, there was very, very little Irish. There was no Irish film industry as such, none at all. Um, um, uh, and it was difficult, but it was challenging and rewarding uh, to be part of that change that was going to come about. And you're still fiercely active in the industry. You set up your own production company after your tenure as censor. Um, you produce a movie called The Guarantee that seemed to be a great intersection between real-world events and a dramatic telling. What's the skill that's required to make such a film? And how is it distinct from making either an entirely informative program versus an entirely fictional one? It is an intersection, as you say, and it's sometimes it's not easy, um, and, and and but when it works, it's extremely satisfying. And I was I was lucky because I was working with a, a a journalist stroke playwright dramatist called Colin Murphy in, in in on the Guarantee, for example. I'm working with them now on a program, I'm a documentary feature documentary that I'm doing, and. Colin has a tremendous knack. He has the skill of the dramatist to create fiction, but he has the skill of the journalist to relate it to real events. So the things that he has uh, focused on and made plays, if you like, theatre plays from, uh, like Charles Hawhey, the, 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 the discussions between Charles Hawhey, who was leading a minority government, and he had to negotiate with 
a, a politician called Tony Gregory, who was an independent, and 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 their negotiation was was tremendously fraught and difficult and interesting. And Colin made drama out of that. He made drama out of the guarantee, you know, and the and the the financial kind of meltdown. Uh, he made drama out of the bailout, which I also did, you know, with with him, the death of Brian Lenehan. And he was able to take real events and make them uh, not fictional, but get the drama that it that that was in them to the, to the fore. Uh, and that's always very exciting. You're currently producing a documentary about a fairly incredible story that happened in the Department of Agriculture. I'm 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 struggling to ask. I'm so baffled by the story. I'm struggling to find a, to phrase the question to ask about it. Perhaps you could tell us about it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, time will tell because we're we're in the course of doing it at the at the moment. But the, the in its simplest terms, it's and I'm doing it with Charlie Bird, who, as everybody knows, is suffering from a degenerative disease, which is awful. He he has motor neuron disease, and. It's interesting because I was in discussions with him about this very project when he got his diagnosis. So it was we had to put it on hold, uh, and then subsequently a year, a year or more later, we've we reactivated it again. The story is quite extraordinary, and it's a story that Charlie had come upon, and it fascinated him. His whole journalistic uh, antennae went up, and it's simple. It's simply this. At the end of August 1979, the Minister for Agriculture received a letter, and the letter said, Dear Minister, if the Irish government does not pay us £5 million, this is 40 years ago, uh, we will unleash the deadly foot-and-mouth virus in this country. So you can imagine you know, how that letter landed. And the, the guards and the public servants uh, the authorities uh, went into a, a huddle. Is it a hoax? Is it real? If it's real, it's extremely serious. Who's behind this? And over the next six months, a kind of cat and mouse game was played out between what was a criminal gang that had sent in this extortion attempt and the guards uh, and the authorities. And the story remained secret. Not, not, not kept secret. It just didn't emerge for forty years until Charlie came upon it. So we're doing that, and it's really interesting because it's, it's the story of a legendary journalist trying to get to the truth of what happened. Um, you know, before time runs out for him, he's got a ticking clock. What? How did the cat and mouse game manifest itself between the government and this gang? Uh, well, in, in lots of ways, uh, there were, I think, six letters over a period of about six months, a couple of phone calls, uh, demands from the gang to the authorities. For example, there was a demand to have a white mini car placed outside the Gresham Hotel in Dublin. Uh, and this was going to be the car that would drive the ransom uh, the title of the the film is Ransom Seventy Nine, and the 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 ransom, the extortion money, was going to be put in a brown uh, suitcase and put in this car, and then driven around on a prescribed route, uh, and a plainclothes detective, whom we have interviewed, an undercover detective, uh, was driving this car, and the idea was that at some point the car would encounter another car that would flash its lights and then he would throw the bag out of the window or out of the car and that the the, the criminals would, would speed away. There was even a suggestion that it would be done near a bridge over a river and that a fast boat would take the bag with the money out to, out to sea and, and, and the Navy were called in. And was this a means of the gang verifying that the government were going to go along? Or do you think there was an aspect of it that they were um, showing off their power that they had over the government with this, the ransom they were trying to get? 
Oh, I don't think they were. They were. I don't think this was an idle threat. I think they were. It wasn't. Uh, they weren't doing this for fun. This was definitely an attempt to get money. Mm-hmm. One that would have had devastating economic consequences. Oh, had it absolutely devastating. Like it would have brought the agric the economy, which was significantly agricultural, uh, proportionately, it would have brought it to its knees. Especially in the context of today, it was quite a different economy at the time. Uh, totally. Mm-hmm. A question about um, young people and film. TikTok, YouTube, social media seem to make up hours and hours of people's time, of people, of young people's time nowadays. Do you think that um, young people appreciate film enough? I I honestly don't know. I I, I suspect maybe there, there, maybe not, because there's so much time and attention taken up by aspects of social media that 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 were not there before um so so i think inevitably it must have an effect it it must have an effect uh some of it might be good but a lot of it i don't think is 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 good at all it's distracting it's some of it is mindless it's not it's not it's not productive, uh, but I suppose that there is the other side of it, which is that we are more, much more visually conscious now. Everybody is. I mean, the fact that people, whatever they're doing, they're working with images uh, and they're working with communicate with communication in a way that simply wasn't possible when I was young. That's not a bad thing. What's your hope for the future of the Irish film industry, given you experienced, you were involved in it when it was virtually non-existent. You saw um, you were involved when the Irish Film Board was introduced and subsequently gone and then reintroduced again. What's your hope for the future of Irish film? I think it's uh, that it will continue to make an impact. It has made an extraordinary impact in recent years. I think out of all proportion, when I was younger, we used to admire uh, countries like, for example, Denmark, which had a significant film industry and was roughly the same size, almost exactly the same population size as Ireland. How did they do it? And we couldn't. Now we can and better, you know, and it's really remarkable and amazing what's being achieved. I mean, the 14 Oscar nominations, you know, was was a measure of it. Extraordinary, you know, absolutely extraordinary from one country, you know. Uh, so I hope I hope that will continue. I mean, we, we are small, but we are making that impact. And, you know, fair play to those, all those who've been involved in in supporting it and, and, and fostering it, like the like Screen Ireland, no question about it, like the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, now called Comishun Naman. Uh, they've all played their part. Like, it's amazing. I don't know what number, is it 12,000 people now work in the industry? It's probably, it was well under 1,200 when I was younger. What do you think the government could be doing better to support um, independent film producers? I, I, I wouldn't be critical of what they're doing. I think I think that they've done, I think a lot has been done. A significant amount has been done. It's done in two ways. It's done by the the agencies which like i've mentioned screen ireland and the the way in which they support filmmaking uh, and it's done through an extraordinarily valuable initiative which is the section 481 uh, tax incentive measure which has brought in huge investment in terms of uh, films and drama being made that come in but also that are generated by Irish uh, filmmakers. Like it, it is a hugely positive initiative and I long may it continue. I hope it will. What advice would you give to the next generation of Irish people in film? Well, if, if I was giving it 30 years ago, I would say don't go into film, go into farming or go into fishing or go into flying an airplane. Do not go into film. That's all changed. That's changed completely. Now you can actually say to somebody, and I would 
say to somebody, you know, this is a this is a a, a business. It used to be a lifestyle choice. It wasn't a, it wasn't a business. It wasn't an industry. It was something that you had a passion for, and you went into it because you had a passion. You couldn't be sure of surviving or of making a living in it, and many couldn't and didn't or had to go abroad. Now you can be here. You can actually work here. So I would say, you know, it's it's a it's a terrific. Uh, world to to be in. Decide what it is that you most like about it. Like some people opt to be in the on the technical side. Some people opt to be on the uh, if you like the creative side, as in directing or or being an editor or being a composer or whatever. And others like me opt to be uh, on the production side, which and a producer and the role of a producer, which is the one that I know most about. Is, is really interesting because it embraces a lot of things. It's about making things happen. Essentially, I always define it as this, very, very simple. Producer's job, a director's job is to make it good. A producer's job is to make it happen. So the producer looks after getting the money, looks after organizing how you can get a particular actor. The director might choose the actor, but the producer puts it together, the logistics, the schedule, the, the crew, the people, above all, raising the, the money, which is the most difficult thing. I'm bringing that all together. And that's very challenging. Uh, it's also very, very, very uh, rewarding. And one final question. What parting words would you have to this generation of Irish people that have grown up without any um, experience of of censorship of film? <laughs> I think the, my words would be, you're, you're, you don't know how lucky you are because I, I, I didn't see films because I couldn't see them. I didn't see whole films because they were cut. They were distorted. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So I would say you guys are very lucky. I We started the podcast with the title The Last Censor. I think it's more fitting to call you The First Classifier. Thank you very much, Sean, for coming <laughs> on the Ramcast. Thank you, Stephen. I like that title. <laughs> that was our discussion with John Keller. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast. <laughs>